0: Tonight comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. I will begin reading at verse 24, and our text will begin at verse 32 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 37. Mark 13, 24-37. Let's hear the Word of the Lord to us this evening. Jesus is speaking about the last days. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the Father's part of the earth to the Father's part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near." So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then the text begins at verse 32. Excuse me. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask that you would touch our very hearts and souls by your Word and Spirit. Quicken your Spirit within us, that we might hear your Word and that it might touch our very lives. Not just our minds, but our hearts and how we live. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved people of God, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus warns his disciples that the time to come on this earth, he warns them that it's not going to be a very rosy time. He tells them that they will find trouble and tribulation and persecution and hatred from the world. They will find apostasy in the church. These things must be. But in spite of all that goes on in this world, Jesus also promises that He will be with His disciples and be with them to the very end. That He will never leave them nor forsake them. He promises them that the Gospel will go forth with the power of His Spirit. And one day all this that we see in the world around us, it will all come to an abrupt end. One day the Son of Man will return in the clouds with great power and glory. One day the Lord will come. And He will gather all of His elect into the fullness of that glorious kingdom of God in Christ that is coming. But of course, this promise of Christ's return has always provoked the question, when will this be? When will these things happen? When will He return in all of His power and glory to judge the living and the dead? When will the Good Shepherd come and separate the sheep from the goats? When will the end of the age come? That end that we, as God's people, all look forward to with such hope. When is that going to happen? And down through the ages, there have been many, actually, who tried to predict when Christ would return. I mean, all the way back in the 2nd century, we have Montanus, uh, Montanus excuse me, who predicted that Christ would return and He would set up the New Jerusalem in Papusa of Phrygia. That's in the Asia minor. You, you probably never heard of it, right? But of course, that was his hometown. That's where Christ was going to return. You have some of the more radical elements of the Anabaptist movement during the Reformation predicting the imminent return of Christ, that the world was going to end, and that only the city of Munster would be preserved. Which, of course, was the home base of their operations. Um... In more recent times, you've had the prediction of the Millerites, who were forerunners of the Adventists, that Christ would return in 1843. And when that didn't happen, they predicted 1844, and that didn't happen, of course. You have the, the Russellites after that. They were the forerunners of the Jehovah false witnesses, and they predicted that Christ would return in 1914. And when that failed, they predicted some other times as well, which, of course, didn't happen either. In more recent times, there was Harold Camping from Family Radio who went out on a limb with his book and a prediction that Christ would return in 1994, uh, right in the middle of my seminary career. I I can tell you that growing up, I heard such predictions every time there was a conflict in the Middle East, and I'm sure in the 21st century, we're going to see even more of such predictions. But as we're going to see here very clearly this evening, Jesus actually leaves no room for such date setting. The promise is made that Jesus Christ will return. He will come again. We can be certain of that. God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish what he sends it out to do. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not the word of our God. It will never, ever pass away because it abides forever. And so what we're going to see tonight as we look at the promise of Christ's return is that we're not to be so much concerned about when Christ will return as much as we are to be concerned about what we are supposed to be doing in the meantime as we wait for his return. To put it more simply, the question is not when will Christ return, rather the question is how then shall we live? Because the fact and and the certainty of Christ returning in great power and glory, that should affect how you and I live in this world as we wait for that blessed day to come. So, my theme tonight will be that Jesus warns His disciples of the unexpectedness of His return. And we have two points tonight. We're going to look at verse thirty-two, which speaks of the timing of His return, and then the parable that Jesus gives in verses thirty-three through thirty-seven. Our duty until His return. Now, in verse 32, Jesus gives us exactly what you and I need to know when it comes to the timing of His return. He has promised us that it will happen. We know that it is certain. Jesus said uh, so earlier in this chapter, but as as to the question of when, Jesus says this in verse 32, But of that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but only the Father. The the phrase that's used here for that day and hour refers to that final day, the final hour of Christ's return. It refers to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the final day of judgment that will bring the the age to an end. And Jesus says, no one knows when that will be. He says, it has not been revealed. It's a secret. It's a mystery. And it remains a mystery to us. We know that the time is set, right? We just don't know when it is. It has not been made known to us. And we should not fall into the trap, uh, like Harold Camping did, of thinking, well, we might not know the day and hour, but we can know the month or the year. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what this phrase means. It means that we do not know when this is going to happen, period. We know that it will happen. But we don't know when. We don't know the hour, the day, the month, or the year. It's been hidden from us. None of us knows when it will be. And Jesus goes on to explain just how hidden this secret really is. Because Jesus not only says that all humanity, all of us, do not know when He will return to judge the living and the dead, but not even the angels in heaven know when this is going to be. The day that it's going to come in the future, it has not been revealed to the angels in heaven. And and think about that for just a moment. Even the angels who never fell with the devil and his demons, even those angels who never sinned in the least against God like we have, even those perfect angels who dwell in the very presence of God Most High, who give Him praise and glory, even they do not know when it is that Christ will return. And the very fact that the angels do not know, that should at least set us back a little bit, right? It should make us realize that if God has not told His most trusted and perfect messengers about His plans, then who do we think we are that He should tell us? Why should we, who really are redeemed sinners, expect that God would tell us when this great day will be? And yet the mystery of this secret goes even further than that, because Jesus says that not only do the angels in heaven not know when this time will come, but not even the sun That the sun does not know when this time will be. Now, I don't know about you, that, but there's obviously a mystery here that should boggle our minds, our finite minds, right? Th- this is a mystery that really should humble us before God is when we think about the second coming of Christ, Jesus says, even the Son, even He Himself doesn't know when that will be. I mean, how can the second person of the Trinity not know the time when He will return in great power and glory? Well, the answer has to do with who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He's the God-man. He is the union of God and man in one person. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we have two natures united together in one person. We have the nature of man and the nature of God united in the one person, Jesus Christ, and they are separate natures. They're unmixed. Often when we look at the Scriptures, we see one of those two natures kind of come to the forefront. When Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan and word came to Him that Lazarus was was sick, Jesus waited around for several days. And, And then He finally told His disciples, Lazarus is dead. Now, that is an evidence of his divine nature. He knew that Lazarus was dead. No one told him. But when they came to Bethany, what did Jesus do? He asked the sisters of Lazarus, where have you laid him? And so here we see his human nature come to the forefront. We know Jesus knew all things. We we know that in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, but Jesus was also man. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew weariness. And this is part of that great mystery that Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that Christ made Himself of no reputation. That He emptied Himself and took on the form of a bondservant. And so we see here that Jesus, as the Son of Man, Jesus in His human nature does not know the day or the hour of His return. He knows that He will return. But He doesn't have the date. Now, I think we should think about this too. If there really was some secret date that was locked up in the Scriptures that we could find out, Jesus, the Son of Man, would have known about it, right? Because He knew the Word of God. But you see, the teaching of the Scriptures is that we do not know. But there is someone who does know exactly when Christ will return. There is someone who has already set the date and that great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. And that one is no less than the Father. Jesus says that His Father knows exactly when this great date will be. It's not some indefinite date in the future. It's not something that's contingent upon other things before it can become a reality as if it might or might not happen. The day and the hour have already been determined by the counsel of God the Father. He knows when it will be, and there's not a power in the universe that can stop that day from coming because it has been ordained by the Father to be so. Now, beloved, not only should this statement by Christ keep us from setting any dates as to when Christ will return, not only should it set off any you know alarms in our head when we hear someone begin setting dates, but we should also be thankful that we don't know when it will be. We should be thankful that we don't know. Just think about what it has meant for the church down through the ages not to know exactly when Christ would return. I mean, think of the the heroes of our faith who stood steadfast in the defense of the truth of God. Maybe they would have wavered in their motivation if they knew that the great day of the Lord was, well, that's a thousand years from now. That's two thousand years. It's more than that in the future. Maybe they wouldn't have been so urgent to spread the gospel. Think of the apostles of Augustine, of Athanasius, of Luther, of Calvin, and countless others who have fought for the truth over the years. The date of Christ's return was hidden from them. It was hidden from us for their good and for our good. The point is that we are not supposed to know when Christ will return. We know that He will. We just don't know when. And it is the certainty of His return and really the uncertainty of the timing of His return that really gives us the strongest motivation to stay awake and to be faithful at His return. So that we may be found to be faithful at His return. So so what is important for us to know here is what you and I are supposed to do and to make sure that we're doing it as we wait for Christ's return. Because that's what Jesus really teaches us here in the last section of our text in verses 33-37. through 37. He tells us we don't know what it's, when it's going to happen, but He tells us what we are to do. Our duty until His return. So Jesus tells this short parable about you know, what we're supposed to be doing while we're waiting for His second coming. His coming again. And this little parable tells us not only that we do not know when He will return, it also tells us that it is imperative for us to be ready to meet Him when that day comes. Because Christ will come at a time when we least expect it. And you and I are supposed to be ready to meet Him when He does come. Look at verse 34 with me. Jesus says, "...it's like a a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch." The man who goes to a far country obviously must be Christ Himself, right? And He's telling His disciples here in this parable that the time is coming when He is going to go away. He's not going to remain with them during this time of trouble and persecution and apostasy that's coming, at least not in the flesh. After His death, burial, and resurrection, Christ is going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. There He is going to intercede for us as our great High Priest. There He will plead our case before the Father as our Advocate. There He will wait for all of His enemies to be placed under His feet like a footstool. And all of this is for our good. For Christ to go away, that is for our good. Because after He is exalted, Christ will also send the Holy Spirit to us. The Spirit of Christ who will dwell in us. And then Christ will be with us in a way that was not possible before, as we heard lately in Seth's preaching on John 14. But before He goes... Our Lord Jesus gives authority to His servants for the work that He has for them to do. And we know by what's recorded in the Scriptures that that's what Jesus did, right? In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That Jesus Christ is identifying Himself to His disciples as the absolute ruler over everything, over all things. And as such, who is the absolute ruler, He sends His disciples out to do His work. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As the ruler of heaven and earth, Jesus sends His disciples, His followers, in His authority, to spread the glorious gospel of peace to a world that is lost in sin. That is our primary mandate. And yet if you look at the parable here, you'll notice the emphasis is on the doorkeeper. That the doorkeeper is singled out from the rest of the servants with this command to watch. And the word that's used for watch means to be alert, to be awake, to be ready to do what is required. And the duty of the doorkeeper was to open the door promptly for the master as soon as he returned. And you'll notice here, this command is repeated by Jesus in verse 35. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. you notice anything about those time periods that Jesus mentions here? What they're really telling us is that Jesus could come at any time. And it means that the Lord is going to return when we least expect it. Or, and especially that the Lord is going to return when this world least expects it. And this is a warning for us. He's telling this parable to us. You know, while the world is, is asleep to the things of God, while the world closes its eyes uh, to the coming of Christ, the Christian, you and I, we are commanded to be awake. We are commanded to keep watch. Because we know that the coming of the Lord is near. The Lord may come at any time. And therefore, we're not to sleep as the world sleeps. In fact, we are to be occupied in the work that the God has given us to do. We are to live our lives with an eye always looking forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the judgment which is to come. That's really what we're supposed to be doing. Are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? Are you ready for the judgment that is going to come? That's a question that all must answer. Are we living our lives with one eye to the coming of our Lord, our Lord, our great and gracious Savior, who has promised he will come again? Now, beloved, I want you to to listen here to what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Thessalonica about the coming of the Lord. In First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through eleven, I want to read that whole passage, but I want you to hear what he says to them. There were some corrections that need to be made. He says, "But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety," then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. but Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. So the point, once again here, is that Jesus is coming. And Paul is telling the church, you'd better be ready. You better be awake. You better be watching. And you better be living for Him. Now we see here that that Jesus gives us a list of three things that really should occupy our time as we wait for His coming. First of all, we're we're told that we are to watch. And and there's these two phrases that are used over and over in in chapter 13 of Mark when Jesus speaks of the days to come. Take heed and watch. They they seem to go together. Uh, And if you remember, the, the, the take heed means to beware of, to watch out for, to pay attention. And the word watch, as I've already said, means to keep your eyes open, to be prepared to do what is necessary, to be prepared to do what is required of you. And both of these terms have the emphasis on being ready to do our duty. And so as we live in our lives on this planet, on this earth, we're not to live for ourselves. We're to live for our God, and we're to live as if we're ready for His return, looking to Him. You know, the lie of Satan in the garden is that we can live our lives to ourselves without any reference to God. And that is the lie that the whole world has swallowed. But you see, God, first of all, as our creator, but also especially as our redeemer, our God requires us to live our lives in reference to him, in service to him, serving the most high God with all that we are, with our whole being. That is the purpose for your existence and my existence. That's the reason for our existence. We are to live our lives To Him, looking to Him each day to lead us and to guide us, looking to Him until that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. But second, we're not only to watch, we're also to pray. Jesus says, Watch and pray. Prayer has been called the life breath of the Christian. Prayer is how we breathe as Christians. We're we're commanded by the Scriptures to pray without ceasing. That We're always to be in an attitude of prayer, always to be online with God, if you will. And yet we have to admit here that often we do not spend that much time in prayer, do we? We're much more akin to thinking that we're too busy to pray than we are to thinking that we are so busy we can't afford not to pray. How much time do we really spend in prayer? How often do we go to the throne of grace? And how often when we do go to the throne of grace, do we ask amiss that we may consume it upon our own pleasures? Let us draw near to God in prayer, our God in prayer. Let's seek His mercy. Let's seek His grace in prayer. Let's commune with our God in season and out of season in prayer. You know, we don't know how much good our prayers may actually do for others. How much good they may actually do for ourselves. But we do know that we are called and we should be a people of prayer. Because our God has ordained to bring about His sovereign will through the prayers of His people. Now you and I, we may not understand that completely. But it is true nonetheless. Our God has ordained to bring about His sovereign will Through the prayers of His people. And ask yourself this. How many of you do you think, humanly speaking, were saved in answer to the prayers of some dear saint? Think about that. Think of the prayer of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As he's being stoned to death. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Whose life of all those there was most affected by that prayer? It was none other than Saul of Tarsus who guarded the coats of those who stoned Stephen and gave consent to his death. But you see, God answered the prayer of the martyr Stephen in a mighty way. And the one who was the chief of sinners, the man who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, became the greatest of the apostles. One who outdid them all. But as the Apostle Paul would say, yet not I, But the grace of God in me. Who knows how the Lord may use your prayers? Who knows what good the Lord may bring about from your prayers? Therefore, pray and keep on praying. And the third and last thing that Jesus tells us to do as we wait for his coming is to watch, to pray, and to work. The call to new life in Christ is not a call to idleness as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as those who have been delivered from the wrath to come, we need to understand that God has not called us to be lazy. We're not going to coast our way into heaven. We are called to give ourselves to the work of the Lord. And that can take many forms in this life. We're, we are to work in whatever calling the Lord has for us, what He's given to, to us, so that we might bring glory to Him. And so whether, you know, whether we work with computers or do manual labor, whether we change diapers or clean houses or we're in school, we're working, we're retired, we are to do all that we do as unto the Lord. You know, part of the glory of the, of the Reformation was the recovery of vocation. Recovery of calling. That we can serve the Lord in whatever we do, as long as it is lawful and done for His glory. And so there's a sense in which the the wall between the secular and the spiritual is broken down in the life of the Christian. A pastor really doesn't do more for the glory of God just because he's a pastor. As we all labor in our calling, whatever the Lord has called us to do, we all bring glory to God. We bring honor to our King as we live for Him, as we obey Him. So let us watch and let us pray and let us work, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, people of God, sometimes we can be so concerned about the here and now that we, we forget about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We forget about the judgment that is to come. We we can be so consumed with our lives right now that we forget that this planet that we're living on will not endure forever, at least not as it is. You know, We see this in the lives of those people who lived on the earth in the days of Noah. That in spite of the preaching of Noah, in spite of the ark being built right there before them, the people of this world, they cared less. They could have cared less. They were not concerned about it at all you remember what Jesus says about them in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Jesus said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You see, Jesus Christ is coming. And you'd better be ready for it. Because it's only those who are in Christ, it's only those who put their faith in Christ to save them from their sins that will find that day to be a day of rejoicing. To everyone else, it will be a day of terror, a day of judgment. And so all of life, all of your life, all of my life, is to be lived in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. That the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again should, it really should touch everything we do. It's part of our motivation to serve Him. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But also, beloved, we want to make sure that we're not like those in Thessalonica. Uh, This is is always a danger the church has to look out for. The, The Thessalonians had many questions about the coming of the Lord. And when Paul answered those questions in his first epistle to them, words that I read earlier to you, many of them, what they did is they gave up their work. Because, hey, the Lord's coming. They became idle. And Paul warned them in his second letter to, to get back to work. To the work that God has called them to do. Listen to his words in Second Thessalonians. First in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. He, he tells them, the Lord has not come yet. We don't know what, when that's going to be. So what are we to do? And that's what he tells them as he goes on in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to read verses 6 through 13. Paul says to them, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Beloved, you have been called to be ready for the Lord's return. That is, you have been called to watch and to pray and to work. You are to be a good watchman as you eagerly wait for the glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, let us be ready. Let us watch, for we do not know when the Lord will return. Let us pray for His will to be done as we wait for that return. And let us work faithfully for Him until He does return. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.